Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter 13, and we, of course, are making our way through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, we are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but we are dividing every chapter within the appropriate themes, and uh, tonight we'll be finishing up Luke chapter 13, and I'd like you to notice that in verses 18 through 35, through the end of the chapter, which is what we'll be dealing with tonight, there is a theme, which is why we will cover all those verses in one sermon. And the theme is that of the kingdom of God. If you notice there in Luke chapter 13 and verse 18, the Bible says, Then said he, the he there, of course, is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Unto what is, and I'd like you to notice this little phrase, the kingdom of God. Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? In Luke 13 and verse 18, the Lord Jesus Christ begins a series of lessons and teachings on the subject of the kingdom of God. If you skip down to verse 20, uh, you'll notice that it's brought up again. Luke chapter 13 and verse 20, and again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? If you skip down to verse number 28, you'll see it yet again. Luke 13, 28, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out, notice also verse 29, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. So you'll notice that the theme that Jesus is teaching on in this subject, in this passage, is on the subject of the kingdom of God. And we're going to walk through this passage and I'll give you an outline, and we'll learn it tonight. But before we begin that, I'd like to give you a definition or give you definitions for the term the kingdom of God. We saw here in this passage that the theme of the kingdom of God is in this passage. We saw these multiple mentions. But I'd like you to notice that not only is the theme of the kingdom of God in this passage, but before we jump into the passage and begin to dissect it and look at it, I'd like you to notice that there is a definition, or I want you to learn the definitions of the kingdom of God uh, throughout the Bible. So we're just going to run a few verses real quickly, because this term, the kingdom of God, is often a misunderstood term, and uh, oftentimes people will look at a verse that mentions the kingdom of God, and they'll think that it's teaching something that it's not. And I believe that the reason for that is because uh, we try to have one definition for the term the kingdom of God, but I want to show you tonight just by way of introduction that the, 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 the term, the phrase, the kingdom of God uh, has different definitions uh, that it's used in different contexts, and I think that'll be clear uh, when we run some of these verses. So keep your place there in Luke 13, that's our text for tonight, but go with me if you would to the Gospel of John. John chapter number 3, you're there in Luke, just just flip over to John chapter number 3, and I'd like you to notice, and if you're taking notes, you can write these things down, the different definitions for the kingdom of God. Number one, the kingdom of God at times, and I want to say it that way because at different times, the term the kingdom of God is used in different ways. Now, they're all very closely tied together. I think you'll see that, which is why the term is used, but it's used in different context. It's used with different definitions, I should say, in different contexts. And the first I'd like to show you that the kingdom of God at times refers to the literal kingdom of God in heaven. So there are times when you are reading through the Bible and you see this term, the kingdom of God, and it is specifically referring to what you and I would refer to as heaven, where God 
lives, where the throne of God is, it's literally referring to the kingdom of God in heaven. Just a couple of proof texts for that. John 3.3, 3. of course, this is a famous conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. And Jesus makes this statement in John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. Of course, we know the phrase, the term born again is a reference to salvation. And he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here in John 3, 3, we see that the kingdom of God is uh, defined as, or is being used uh, as the uh, reference to heaven. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, is a reference to heaven. Go back to Luke chapter 18. Let me give you another example of that. Luke chapter 18. So sometimes in the Bible, you see this phrase, the kingdom of God, and it is a reference to to heaven. Literally, heaven where God dwells, where believers go when they, when they die. Proof text, Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Luke 18, 25, Jesus said this, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye, uh, through, through a needle's eye, notice what he says, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Again, what is this referring to? The kingdom of God is referring to heaven. This is a reference to salvation. The idea is that it's, it, it's, it's hard for rich people to be saved. Rich people are less receptive. That's why when you go to uh, nice uh, neighborhoods like North Natomas, you're going to have less people talk to you. You're going to have more people slam the door in your face than if you go to ghetto neighborhoods like South Natomas or Del Paso. That's why the Philippines and Mexico, super hyper-receptive. Canada, the UK, not so much, right? Because you say, what is the reason for that? Here's why. Because these are nations that have wealth as opposed to nations that don't have wealth. So it is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of, of, of a needle, uh, a needle's eye, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And here we have an example where the kingdom of God is referring to heaven, and the idea is that they will not go to heaven, or many of them will not go to heaven because of the fact that they are rich. Now, you're there in Luke 18. Flip back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. So we see that the kingdom of God at times refers to the literal kingdom of God in heaven. Uh, and, and, and by the way, let me just say this, and I'm not really preaching on this, but the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are terms that are used interchangeably. Dispensationalists will try to make a big deal about, you know, these two different kingdoms, ones of heaven, ones of God. They're used interchangeably throughout the Bible. Uh, a very quick study of that makes that very clear, and uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Here's a second uh, definition for the kingdom of God. At times, we saw it refers to the literal kingdom of God in heaven, but secondly, the kingdom of God at times refers to the work of God on earth. So at times, the kingdom of God refers to the literal kingdom of God in heaven. But at other times in your King James Bible, the, the phrase the kingdom of God refers to the work of God on earth. Notice there in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 9. Luke chapter 10 and verse 9, the Bible says, this is, was Jesus speaking. He said, and heal the sick that are therein. He just got done telling them to go into a city. If people receive you, if they, if they feed you, accept that. If they don't, uh, don't worry about it. He says in verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. The word nigh means near. And what, he's, what Jesus is saying is he's telling the disciples, when you go out 
into the cities and you preach the gospel and you heal the sick and you cast out devils and, and, and people reject you or even if they receive you, he says, but especially, he says, if they reject you, make sure you let them know that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So he's referring to the fact that they were preaching the gospel, casting out devils, healing the sick as the kingdom of God. And he's using that phrase, the kingdom of God, as the work of God on the earth. Let me give you another example. Go to Luke chapter number 11. Luke chapter number 11. Now, you say, why would, why would God use these terms interchangeably in one context to refer to the kingdom of God in heaven, literally the kingdom of God in heaven, and in another context to refer to the work of God on earth as the kingdom of God? And the reason for it is because these terms are, are, are so closely tied together. It is the work of God on earth that allows people to enter into the kingdom of God in heaven. It is when you and I go out and we preach the gospel and we get people saved and we do God's work on earth that that allows people to then be born again and see the kingdom of God. So when he says, look, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you, he's saying the work of God, the message of God, the things of God have came nigh, have came near unto you, and you have not received them. Notice Luke 11 in verse number 20. This is again Jesus. He says, but if I, Jesus speaking, with the finger of God... Cast out devils. What is he referring to? He's referring to the work of the ministry. He says, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. So he refers to the work he's doing on earth, the work of God. He refers to that as the kingdom of God uh, coming near or coming upon them. Now, I'd like you to go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Let me give you another example. Because you might be thinking, I don't know. That might just be referring to salvation. That might be referring to the physical, you know, the actual heaven, that salvation or heaven came near unto them or nigh unto them. But Luke 9.62, I think it's just clear that the kingdom of God is also used as a term in regards to the work of God. Because in Luke 9.62, the Bible says this, And Jesus said unto him, this is Jesus speaking, No man having put his hand to the plow. What is that referring to? That is a reference to work. He says, taking your hand and grabbing a tool, a plow, to get to work. He says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back. What is that a reference to? Reference to someone getting ready to get, get started in a work, but they're having second thoughts. They're looking back. They're not fully committed to what they're doing. He says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit, the word fit means that they're fitting or suitable for the kingdom of God. Now, people like to use this verse to prove that you've got to work your way to heaven. And they'll say, well, look, if you put your hand to the plow and then you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You're not going to go to heaven when you die. That's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is saying that if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the work of God. You're not fit for the ministry of God. You're not fit for the work of God, which is uh, 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 doing and, of course, expanding the kingdom of God upon the earth. So I want you to understand that sometimes the phrase, the kingdom of God, is used throughout the Bible as a reference literally to the kingdom of God in heaven. Other times the phrase is used as a synonym for the work of God on earth. And of course, we know that the work of God on earth produces people entering into the kingdom of God in heaven. And of course, we see that here when Jesus says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit, is suitable for the kingdom of God in reference to the work of God, the ministry of 
God. But let me give you another example. Go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. So we saw, number one, that the kingdom of God at times refers to the literal kingdom of God in heaven. And secondly, we saw that the kingdom of God at times refers to the work of God on earth. But I'd like you to just notice thirdly, and this is all just by way of introduction before we get into the passage. And the reason I need to do this is because you need to understand what the term the kingdom of God means so that you can understand what Jesus is teaching in Luke 13, uh, verses 18 through 35. The third definition for the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God at times refers to salvation and the things of God in general. And you can understand how if sometimes it means heaven, sometimes it means the work of God, then you can understand how it could also mean and be a reference to just salvation and the things of God in general. Notice there Luke 17, verse 21. Luke 17, 21. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. Notice this. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So people often, they get confused and they're like, well, wait a minute. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Referring to a location, a place. But now here he says that the kingdom of God is within you. How can that be? Well, here's the thing. You are part of the kingdom of God if you're a saved person. And the kingdom of God in, is often just is a reference to heaven, is a reference to salvation or saved people. It's a reference to saved people doing the work of God on earth, which produces, uh, 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 which produces people, of course, going to heaven. So when the Bible says the kingdom of God is within you, you just have to realize that that phrase could be used just in general as a reference to salvation or the things of God, uh, as the work or the ministry of God, or as the literal place where believers will uh, go when they die. Let me give you one last example. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you go backwards, you have Luke, Mark, and Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. And I'm giving you some examples to prove that the kingdom of God at times refers to salvation and the things of God in general. Of course, when he says the kingdom of God is within you, that shows us that it's just often the kingdom of God is just referring to God's people, the things of God in general. Here's another example of that, Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. So when the Bible says seek ye first the kingdom of God, what is that referring to? Is it saying, you know, try to get your way up to, to the literal heaven, get some rocket ship and try to get up there? When the Bible says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, what he's saying is, seek ye first the things of God, the, the things that God would have for you, the things of salvation, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Go back to Luke chapter 13, if you would. Hopefully that helps you understand that this phrase, the kingdom of God, is sometimes referring to the literal heaven location where people who, uh, believers who die are going to go. And then at other times, it is a reference to the work of God being done upon this earth by God's people. And then at other times, it's just a reference to God's people, to salvation, or to things in general having to do with salvation. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the things of God. Seek ye first the things that pertain to God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully you understand the phrase, the term, the kingdom of God, and that'll help you understand what Jesus is talking about in this teaching. Now, in this teaching on the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us four different lessons regarding the kingdom of God. 
In verses 18 through 21 in Luke chapter 13, we find the first lesson. And if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. The first lesson we see is on the problem with the kingdom of God. The problem with the kingdom of God. You say the problem? That sounds negative. Well, Jesus is kind of negative in this passage regarding the kingdom of God. Notice Luke 13 and verse 18. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus says this. Then said he, again, Jesus speaking, unto what is the kingdom of God like? He says, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? And whereunto shall I resemble it? The word resemble means to be like or similar or be in comparison of. Now remember, there are different definitions to the term, the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself will use those different definitions throughout this passage. And you say, what is he referring to when he refers to the kingdom of God here in Luke 13, 18? And just to, to help you out, and I think it'll become clear when you see the passage, but he is referring to the kingdom of God as the work of God, the work of God on earth. He says, unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? Notice verse 19. He says, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed. The word wax means to grow or to become a great tree. And the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. So here Jesus is not referring to heaven. He's not, he, he is referring to the work of God, the ministry of God, the things of God. And he says, look, the work of God, he uses this little parable. He said, it's like a grain of mustard seed. We won't take the time to run verses because we're going to run a lot of different verses tonight. But in other passages, we're told that the grain of mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds. And he says, the kingdom of God, the work of God is like a grain of mustard seed. He says, and it grew and waxed a great tree. And the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Luke 13, 18 and 19. Now, I gave as a heading to this portion of scripture, the problem with the kingdom of God. And like I already stated, that, that sounds like a negative thing. And I want to show you that I do believe that this is a negative thing. Now, let me just say this. Most preachers and most Bible studies or, or that are done in Luke 13 will look at Luke 13, 18, 19, 20, and 21, and they will interpret it in a positive way. And they'll say, look, the, here Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed, and it's going to wax, and it's going to grow big. And they'll say, you know, uh, the, the, the gospel and the, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ began in the first century with Jesus, and then with 12, and then from 12, it went to uh, uh, 70, and from 70 to 120, and from 120 to 3,000, and from 3,000 to the book of Acts to 5,000. And, and here we are today with millions of believers, and the kingdom of God has, has grown, and the work of God has grown. And I don't disagree with any of that. But I would just highlight for you that I believe Jesus is making that statement, but he's not making that statement necessarily in a positive way. He's not saying, wow, look at all the TV preachers out there, and look at all the radio preachers out there, and look at all the commentaries that have been written, and all the Bibles that have been translated throughout all of history. And isn't it a great thing that the kingdom of God started like this little mustard seed? Now it's grown big. Now usually that's how people will interpret and apply this passage, but I'd like to show you that in my opinion there is a 
hint of something negative here when Jesus says, look at it again, Luke 13, 19, and it is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden and it grew and waxed a great tree. Great tree. Don't miss last part of verse 19. And the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. He says, look, it's such a great tree that it has branches that will allow for the lodging of the fowls of the air. You say, what, is that? what are the fowls of the air referring to? Well, you know, it's a parable, so we want to be careful to not just decide what something means. The best way to try to figure out is to let the Bible, the best way to teach the Bible is to teach the Bible. The best way to interpret the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself. What's interesting is that the fowls of the air, in other parables, we are told what they represent in a parable. Let's look at it quickly. Flip back to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. You remember Luke 8, we saw the parable of the sower, the famous parable of the sower, the four different grounds, and all of that. We're not going to take time to go through all that, but I want to just highlight for you one thing in that parable. Luke 8 and verse 5, the Bible says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, notice, and it was trodden down. The wayside would be like the sidewalk. Some of the seed did not fall in the field, it fell on the sidewalk or on the, on the pathway where people walk, and it was trodden down, it was walked on. Notice what the Bible says, and the fowls of the air devoured it. So here in Luke 8, we're told that the fowls of the air devoured it, and the, the, the parable of the, uh, uh, of the sower is one of the parables that we would refer to as a key parable. And we would call it a key parable or a parable that has keys in it because of the fact that sometimes Jesus in the Bible would give us a parable and he would not tell us what these things mean. He would just say, you know, give the parable and go on with it. There are certain parables where Jesus gives a parable and then he goes through and tells you what each of the characters represents and what it all means. And those are keys that allow us to understand other parables. So here in the parable of the sower, which is a key parable because of the fact that Jesus goes through and tells us we don't have to get what this might mean or that might mean. He tells us what the fowls of the air represent. What do they represent? Look down at, uh, at Luke chapter 8 and verse 12. In Luke 8, 12, you find the greatest commentary, the Bible itself. When the Bible comments upon itself, not other human beings uh, commenting upon it, which give you a bunch of heresy. Luke 8, 12, the Bible says, Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil. Wait. I thought you said the fowls came. Well, the fowls picture the devil. And then cometh the devil and take away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So notice that in Luke 8, the fowls of the air, the birds, are a representation of the devil or the devils. You say, well, that's just one parable, interpreting it that way, I don't know, is that really consistent? Okay, well, let's look at another example. Go to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, last book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 and verse 2. Revelation 18, 2, the Bible says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become... The habitation of, don't miss it, look at it, devils. Become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit 
and a cage of every unclean and hateful, don't miss it, bird. Notice that we can take from these two passages that in the Bible, birds or fowls represent the devil. Here we're told, Babylon the greatest fallen has fallen has become a habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So, Revelation 18 tells us the birds, they, they represent the devil. Luke 8 tells us the fowls represent the devil and his devils and his demons. And then we go back to Luke 13, go back there if you would, and Jesus says, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed great, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. You say, what is it that Jesus is teaching here? In my opinion, Jesus is teaching us about the problem with the kingdom and the work of the kingdom upon the earth. And the problem with the kingdom is not the kingdom, the problem with the kingdom is that the kingdom has grown so big and the kingdom has grown so large that there are now fowls of the air. There are, there are devils lodged and, and, and planted and, 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 and living and nesting within the branches of the so-called work of God, but those, those are devils within the work of God. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about guys like Kenneth Copeland. I mean, devils lodging within the kingdom work of God. I'm talking about the Pope. I'm talking about Billy Graham. I'm talking about all sorts of false preachers and false teachers who, call, who say, we're part of the kingdom work. We're part of the kingdom of God. But they're just falls of the air, lodged within. Hey, praise God that Christianity has grown uh, and that it's a religion that is known throughout the world. But as a result, Jesus says, there are some strange fowls. There are some strange birds nested within the tree of the kingdom of God. He highlights the problem with the kingdom of God. You say, I don't know about that. I don't know if he's being that negative. Well, let me give you another example. Well, let me say it this way. I won't give you another example. Let's look at the next example Jesus gives. Luke 13, verse 20. We're still on the same point. Because you'll notice that Luke 18 and 19 is a parable about the kingdom of God. And Luke chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 are also a parable about the kingdom of God. And they're the same parable. They're teaching the same thing. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19 are teaching the same thing as Luke chapter 13, 20 and 21. Two different parables, two different illustrations about the same thing. What did we see in Luke 18, 21? We saw the kingdom of God represented as a mustard seed that grew large, and as a result, a bunch of fowls of the air, a bunch of devils have lodged within the branches of the kingdom of God. And look, I'm just here to tell you, turn on your so-called Christian radio, turn on your so-called Christian television, turn on your average Christian preacher, and you're going to find that there's a bunch of fowls of the air, a bunch of demon-possessed devils that have lodged within the kingdom of God and are calling themselves Christians. So I'm not convinced. Here's another example, Luke 13, 20. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken? The word liken means to represent as similar or like 
uh, in comparison of. He says, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? He says, let me give you another example. Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? Verse 21, it is like leaven. Well, that's strange. It is like leaven? Leaven throughout the entire Bible is a picture for sin. Throughout the whole Bible, the word leaven pictures sin. The, the leaven is a picture of sin. Keep your finger right there, Luke 13. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. I'll show you 1 Corinthians, but we could go to lots of passages. During the time of Passover, the children of Israel were supposed to go through their house and take get all the leaven out of their house. They were supposed to remove the leaven. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your glorying is not good, is what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. They were glorying, they were boasting, they were bragging about something they thought was okay, and Paul comes in and says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? You say, well, what do we do? Verse 7, purge out therefore the old leaven. The word purge means to get rid of, to throw, to, get, to, to, to cast out. By the way, this is Paul's introduction to a passage on church discipline. So why do you kick people out of church? Because a little leaven leaven at the whole lump. Because you purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice, leaven is equated to malice and wickedness, and being unleavened is equated to sincerity and truth. Amen. So throughout the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. And then Jesus says, go back to Luke 13, and Jesus would know that the people he's speaking to, the Jews of his day, would understand that leaven is a picture of sin. They were supposed to remove leaven. They were supposed to have unleavened bread to picture the, the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. And Jesus says, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? He says in verse 21, It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. See, the whole thing about leaven, you say, what is leaven? It's yeast. Is that it grows, it expands. That's why a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Here he says, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, in some ways is like leaven, or it's going to be like leaven, to, uh, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, to the whole was leavened. And look, you better believe, you don't think that there are so-called Christians living today who say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm living in open fornication, but, I mean, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with that. It's a sin that God says you should get thrown out of church for. But you can go to churches all across the city where people are just living in open fornication, living in open drunkenness, living in open drug use, living in open adultery, living in all sorts of open sin. And they're like, well, I mean, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal? Hey, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. He says, the kingdom of God is like leaven. Bunch of saved, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, individuals that think it's okay to just live in sin and let it grow. In my opinion, this is not a positive statement that Jesus is making. He says, the kingdom of God, he says, is going to grow. That's a good thing. 
but it's going to grow and sin will spread through it. It's going to grow and the fowls of the air will land in it. And I'll just give you one just historical example if, if, if you need one. I think it applies to a lot of different things, but here's just one solid example of, of, of how the growth of the kingdom of God, the growth of the work of God was not a positive thing. You say, what's the example? In 312 AD, a man by the name Constantine the Great, the emperor of Rome, converted, quote-unquote, to Christianity. His conversion was motivated by a vision he experienced at the Battle of, Mil of the Melvian Bridge in Rome. According to Constantine's biographer, Eusebius, Constantine and his forces saw a cross of light in the sky along the Greek words, uh, were written in this sign, conquer. That night, according to Constantine, he had a dream in which Christ reinforced the message. The emperor marked the Christian symbol of the cross on his soldiers' shields and won the battle. He took that as a sign of God's favor, and later Constantine would convert to Christianity. He would force the Roman Empire to establish Christianity as the uh, religion of Rome and establish what would become known as the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the, the, the church at Rome was a huge expansion for Christianity. I mean, thanks to Constantine, now Christians were no longer being persecuted. Thanks to Constantine, now no longer, you know, th this was great. Christianity was given resources, it was giving strength. It, it grew by leaps and bounds. But when it grew, a bunch of fowls got into the tree. A bunch of devils and Catholic priests, a bunch of pedophiles got into the tree. So Jesus says, and we talked about the problem with the kingdom of God. The problem with the kingdom of God is that not all growth is good growth. The problem with the kingdom of God, he says, I will liken the kingdom of God unto the grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree. But here's the problem. The fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. The thing about the kingdom of God is that, yes, it will grow, but in some ways it will grow in a sinful way. He said it is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And that is exactly how you can describe a bunch of megachurches in this city. The whole has been leavened. So we see the problem of the kingdom of God. Now I'd like you to notice, secondly, tonight, we see the path of the kingdom of God. Jesus deals with this in verses 22 through 24, if you can make your way back to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 24. These words should be familiar to you. He, the Bible says, and he, again referring to Jesus, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, here's the question, are there few that be saved? So the question is, are there just a few people that are going to be saved? And he said unto them, Strive. I want you to notice that word strive there. The word strive is defined in a couple of different ways. One way it is, it, it is defined to fight or to struggle with someone in a combat type of way. The other way that is defined is to labor or to work fervently. Jesus says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. Now this should immediately remind you of the very famous passage in Matthew chapter 7. Let's look at it together if you would. Matthew chapter 7, you're there in Luke, just go back 
past the book of Mark into Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus famously taught on the subject of, or the contrast between the straight gate and the broad way. By the way, the word straight being used here is S-T-R-A-I-T, not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. It is not meaning straight in the sense of something extending in one direction or moving uh, without a curve or a bend. The word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, is a reference to something being narrow, a limited amount of space is what's being referred to here. You may have heard of the, state, the Strait of Gibraltar. And, and again, it's referring to just a limited, narrow passageway. And here, Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And what Jesus is simply teaching is this, that the, most people are not saved, and they're on the broad way. But the broad way leaded to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, or narrow is the gate. He says the word narrow, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So, look, what Jesus is clearly teaching in this passage, and it's interesting because if you go back to Luke chapter 13, the guy asks the question, are there few that be saved? And Jesus actually does not answer that question in Luke 13. You say, why did he not answer that question in Luke 13? I don't know. If I had to assume, I would say it's because Jesus did not like the guy as asking the question. Uh, none of these guys have been very friendly to him. They've all been hostile towards him. It's what we've seen in these last several chapters of Luke 13. But the answer to the question is, is this. When the que- if the question is, are there few that be saved? The answer is yes. In comparison to how many are lost, Few are saved, because straight is the gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, but because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And look, you just need to understand this in, in life. Because one of, the, one of the things I've noticed, that when, when people come to a church like Verity Baptist Church, and they're already saved, and they're already Christians, and many of you have came already saved, already Christians, and God bless you for it, and I'm not mad at you. I'm just stating this as a fact. One thing that we've had to kind of teach you is that, look, most so-called Christians are not saved. Because a lot of naive Christians, especially if they've, they've gone to a church where a lot of, there has not been a lot of just thorough Bible preaching, they just have this assumption that, like, everyone out there is safe. Every preacher on TV is good. Every preacher on the radio is good. Everybody's good. Everybody's safe. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, when you consider how the Holy Spirit put these passages together, Jesus just got done telling us that the kingdom of God is big. But then he says, but those that are saved are few. How can that be? Because the kingdom of God is big because of John MacArthur. A foul in the, in, in, in the airs. A foul in the tree. 
The kingdom of God is big because of Joel Osteen, right. a, a fowl on the tree. The kingdom of God is big because of uh, T.D. Jakes, a fowl in the tree. But that doesn't mean that the people in those churches are safe because those people are preaching a false gospel. Right. So in Luke 13, 18-21, he just got them telling us, hey, yes, the work of God, the kingdom of God is big, it's full of leaven, it's full of devils, it's full of fowls of the air. But he says in verses 22-24, don't be confused, the path to the literal kingdom of God is straight. Is narrow. He tells them, enter ye in at the straight gate. Find the straight gate, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. But he says, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereon. So he talks about the path to the kingdom. But I want to just deal with something real quickly here in Luke 13, because there's something that the fowls of the air... <laughs> that the false prophets within the structure of the Christian work will try to use this passage to teach their false teaching. Because here, Jesus says, well, the question is asked, verse 23, are there a few that be saved? And Jesus answers, verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able and people will literally say, see this word strive? The word strive means to labor and to work hard. And here's the thing. That is one of the definitions of the word strive. Like when uh, Paul said, striving together. He's saying that we as a church should be striving together, should be laboring together. The idea is of rowers rowing together in unison on a ship, uh, heading in the same direction. He says striving together for the faith of the gospel. False prophets will say, here Jesus says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. So as they say, see, you got to work. Right. It's not just faith. you got to work. you gotta, you got to work your way to heaven. you got to do good things. It's work. It's labor. Well, listen to me. That goes against other clear passages of Scripture where the Bible clearly says that it's not of works, Amen. lest any man should boast. Amen. So it's interesting to me that you have this word strive, and it could have two definitions. It's used... In two different ways in our King James Bible. One way is strive like fight. Another way is strive like work. And the fowls within the framework of... I keep doing that. I don't know why that keeps happening. The fowls within the framework of Christianity will say the word strive there is work. But that goes against other clear teaching of Scripture. Where you, where you have a decision, you know, how do I define this word based off the definitions? Why don't you look at other passages of Scripture and let those interpret? Obviously, strive can't be referring to laboring fervently when the Bible says that it's not of works of righteousness which we have done. Right. Say, so, okay, well, how about fight? Could, could the word fight work? Well, I don't know. Does, that, does the word fight go with this verse when, when Jude tells us to earnestly contend for the faith? When there's literally another verse in the Bible that tells us to fight, to contend, to strive for the faith, referring to the gospel, the common salvation, Jude says, here I believe Jesus is telling us, hey, you need to fight and struggle, not work fervently, but you've got to strive to enter into the straight gate. You say, why would Jesus tell us to strive to enter into the straight gate? Here's why. And look, I want you to understand, all of this is in common. I wish some of you would fall in love with the Bible. 
I wish you'd go home and read it and study it. And I think you, if you actually just turned off the stinking Facebook and YouTube and whatever you're watching on your stinking television and actually read and studied the Bible, you might be amazed at the nuggets of truth you find in it. You say, why is it that Jesus is telling us to fight to get into the kingdom of God, to, 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 to get to the path? He's not telling you to work on the path. He's saying you may have to fight to find the path. You say, why? Because the kingdom of God is so big and it's so full of leaven and it's so full of devils. Right. See, here's the truth. Not all of you have the privilege of having the testimony that I have. I have the testimony, and by God's grace, the lines are fallen unto me in goodly places. And I have the wonderful privilege of having the heritage of Christianity and to be able to say that I was born into a Christian family, an actual Christian family, that actually was saved. I was not born a Christian. I was not born saved. But I was born into a family where the gospel was clearly taught to me from a young age, and I was able to be saved. That's not all of your guys' testimony. My wife's testimony is that she was born into a Catholic family where she was taught Catholicism and worked salvation. And you know, for her to be saved, she really had to fight to find the truth. If you're born as a Jehovah's Witness, if you're born as an atheist, if you're born as a Muslim, if you're born as a Hindu, if you're born as a Catholic, if you're born as a oneness Pentecostal, tongue-speaking Pentecostal, if you're born into a repent-of-your-sins family, some of you had to fight, not to get saved, but to hear the truth, because the kingdom of God is so big, and there's so many devils, so many fowls of the air. He says, strive to enter in. Not that once you're in, you got to work for it, but some of you have to fight to find the truth. Amen. You have to fight to learn the truth of the gospel because there's so much mess out there, so much other noise out there. Jesus says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in. Lots of religious people are going to try to center in and shall not be able because they did not strive to enter in at the straight gate. They were fooled by the fowls in the tree and they got on the broad way. So we saw, number one, the problem with the kingdom. We saw, number two, the path of the kingdom. Now I'd like you to notice thirdly tonight, the proximity to the kingdom. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 13 and verse 25. When once the master of the house is risen up, Jesus speaking about the kingdom, and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without. Jesus says, look, you know, there's coming a time when the master of the house is going to rise up. In reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to shut the door. It is not, salvation does not have just this open, timeless opportunity. There comes a point when the door gets shut. And it's a, a reference, in my opinion, to the ark, when the ark was built and anyone that was going to get into the ark had the opportunity, but once that door was shut, the opportunity was gone. You say, when is the door shut? Well, in all of our lives, in every human being's life, the door will be shut. The Bible says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. If you die without Christ, that door is going to get shut. But one day, there's coming the judgment when 
you cannot, Jesus taught us, make sure on your way to the judgment you get things ready because you don't want to try to fix things in court. You don't want to try to fix things when you're at the judgment of God. Verse 25, when one, when one is the master of the house is risen up and hath shut, and hath shut to the door, and he begins to stand without and knock at the door, saying, notice what they said, this should remind you of Matthew, Lord, 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 open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. He says, I don't know from where you're coming from. I don't know, I don't know whence ye are. Then shall you begin to say, now let me just quickly, before I get to the next verse, let me just show you the reference. That Lord, Lord should remind you of Matthew 7. I'm not sure if you kept your place in Matthew. I don't think I asked you to keep your place in Matthew, but go to Matthew 7 if you would. Matthew 7.22. We've got to move quickly. Matthew 7.22. You're there in Luke. Just go past Mark into Matthew. Matthew 7.22. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of judgment. The great white throne. Many shall say unto me in that day, does this sound familiar? Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And look, these people are not saved. You say, how do you know that? Here's how I know it, because somebody who's saved is not going to say to Jesus on the day of judgment, what about all my works? A saved person's not going to say that. You say, Pastor Manus, what, what if you died and you got to heaven and Jesus said, why should I let you into heaven? I'm not going to say, because of all my works, of course. I mean, I preached through the entire book of Luke. No, I'm going to say, uh, you promised to give me salvation. Remember, it's a free gift. You, you, I accepted it by faith, not of works of right. That's what I'm going to say. And, you know, St. Peter is going to say, ah, just kidding, come on in. <laughs> I'm not going to say, Lord, Lord, did we all prophesy in thy name, and then cast out devils, and then our name do many wonderful works. That's what an unsaved person would say. And then will I profess unto them, this is what Jesus is going to say to these religious unsaved people, led by the fowls into the large tree of the kingdom of God, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. By the way, this is not teaching you you can lose your salvation. He didn't say, I used to know you, and you lost your salvation. He said, I never knew you. You were never saved. Go back to Luke 13. Notice what he says. Verse 25. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut, uh, and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I, I know you not whence you are, then shall ye begin to say. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and saying, let me tell you what you're going to say on the day of the great white throne, on the day of judgment. Then shall ye begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence. Haven't the Pharisees had Jesus over for many dinners? We're going to see on Sunday morning they have him over for another dinner. Try to catch him in his words. We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and that was taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Go to Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 4. You're there in Luke, you have John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. You say, what is the teaching here? Why, is, why do you give this point the title, the proximity of the kingdom? Here's why. Because these people get to the uh, great white throne, and in Luke 13, they're 
reason why they should go to heaven, the literal kingdom of God is what's being spoken of. The, the reason they will begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, Jesus, and thou hast taught in our streets. They're going to say, Jesus, we were close to you. We were close to your ministry. We had lunch with you. We had dinner with you. We heard you preach and teach in our street. And what Jesus is teaching is that proximity to the kingdom work does not get you in to the kingdom of God. You're not going to stand at the great white throne and say, but my husband was saved. Proximity doesn't get you in. But my wife was saved. Proximity doesn't get you in. But my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. That means nothing. We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our street. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not. I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Galatians chapter 4. Are you there? Look at verse 9. Galatians 4, 9. But now, after that ye have known God. I, I like how the Holy Spirit of God allows Paul to say something and then kind of changes it because he, he, you say, why does he do that? Was this a mistake in the Bible? This is not a mistake in the Bible. Emphasis is being drawn to this statement. He says, but now, after the, that you have known God. And that's true. Obviously, if you're saved, you have known God. But it's the same idea that we talked about on Sunday morning. You didn't find God. God found you. While ye were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wasn't lost. I was lost. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus found me. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, but now, after the, that ye have known God, he says, look, you, you did find Jesus after he found you. And you did know God. But Paul says, or rather. He said, let, 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 me, let me rephrase. Let me, let me restate that. He said, after that you have known God, he says, or rather, he says, let, let me put that in a better phrase, are known of God. Amen. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, one to ye desire again to be in bondage. You say, why does Paul say that? Here's why he says that. Because salvation is not that you know God. Salvation is that you are known of God. Amen. It's not that I know God. It's that God knows who I am. Otherwise, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And I'm here to tell some of you young people that were born into Verity Baptist Church, and God bless you, and I love you, and I'm for you, but let me just try to help you understand something, that you do not get salvation by getting religion because you were born into a Christian home or born into a Baptist church. Hey, you better make sure that you get saved. Because you're not going to be able to say, we have eaten and drunk in my presence, Jesus. We were taught uh, about Jesus my whole life. I've been in church my whole life. That's not what salvation is. I think sometimes we get this idea that these kids are born here and they grow up here and surely they must be saved. And nobody's ever actually asked them the question, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? What gives you that confidence? You better believe that there are people that grow up and they turn 18 and they turn 19 and they turn 20 and they go off to some college somewhere and they have somebody lying to them and they say, I don't even know if I believe anymore. You say, what was wrong with those people? They never got saved. They got religion. They got religious. They got the Bible. They got Christianity, quote unquote. But proximity to the truth will not get you there. You cannot say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. He's going to respond, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, 
all ye workers of iniquity. Go back to Luke chapter 13. We see the problem with the kingdom, verses 18 through 21. We see the path of the kingdom, verses 22 through 24. We see the proximity to the kingdom in verses 25 and 27. And lastly tonight, we see the people of the kingdom, verses 28 and 30. Notice what he says. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's, Jesus here in the context of speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews of the time. He says, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these are their heroes. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these are the people that, I mean, they, they, they flaunt the fact that they are related to and they are, they, their genealogies go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus says, let me tell you something, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in heaven, notice what he says, and you yourselves thrust out. The word thrust out, that phrase means to push forcibly, to shove, to throw out. Jesus says, let me tell you something, you Pharisees. You're going to be weeping and gnashing. They're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Isaac and Jacob and, all, and Abraham and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out, verse 29, and they shall come. He says the people that are going to be there with with. Uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, They shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom of God is going to be a diverse kingdom. That's what I love about Verity Baptist Church. You look across this crowd and you just see red and yellow, black and white. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold... Uh, there are last, uh, uh, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. If you can make your way back to Matthew, Matthew 8, of course Jesus said this, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Jesus in Matthew 8 looked at a centurion, a Roman Gentile, and he tells him, You are saved. And within that context, he said, Many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, the, 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 the nation of Israel, the unbelieving Jews shall be cast out. You say, why? Here's why. Sadly, many Jews will watch Gentiles from the east and the west and the north and the south sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, sit with their heroes in the kingdom of heaven while they get thrust and cast into hell. Why? Because they had more faith and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the rest of them, they had more faith in those guys than they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are the people of the kingdom? They're not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about Abraham? Abraham believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So we see that the people of the kingdom are not religious people, are not people who do a lot of good works, 
cast out devils on TV, sell handkerchiefs. They are the people that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's quickly just finish this passage so we can begin a new chapter next time we're together on Sunday. Jesus finishes this teaching on the kingdom, then we see this, a few verses here on Jesus with Jerusalem. In verses 31 and 33, we see Jesus speak about the subject of a prophet in Jerusalem. I want you to notice that there's a threat. We'll do this quickly. Verse 31, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, the Pharisees saying to Jesus, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. You know, always be careful when your enemies are warning you about another enemy. You know, it sounds like a setup. And the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, you need to get out, you need to depart, for Herod will kill thee. And this reminds me, and I won't take the time to go there, but it reminds me of the story in Nehemiah where the enemies of Nehemiah come and tell him, hey, they're going to kill you. You better go into the inner part, the, the chamber in the, in, in, um, in the sanctuary. And, and Nehemiah realized that this was a setup. You're going to have me do that so then you could point at me and say, look what he's doing. So we see this threat. The threat is you need to leave now. Get thee out and depart hence for Herod will kill thee. You know why the Pharisees are doing this? I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to get rid of him. Or maybe they were hoping he would go down to Jerusalem because in Herod, if you remember at the crucifixion of Christ, Herod is a different jurisdiction than where Jerusalem is. And in Jerusalem, where Pilate was, they had more influence and they were able to actually kill Jesus there. Maybe that's what they're attempting to do. I don't know. But I want you to notice the response from Jesus. And he said unto them, go and tell that fox. I don't know what that means, but I think it's funny. Behold, I, I mean, it's obviously an insult. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Now, let me just make some statements quickly. Some people put way too much of an emphasis on the time frame here. Jesus says, tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. And people will take that and say, man, you know, Jesus, something happened on that third day. Maybe that's when he was perfected or did this. You know, Jesus is just using hyperbole. He's just, he's just saying, look, I got plans. There's time to get out. He's like, well, well, I've got plans for today, tomorrow and the third day. And I'm not going to be done till, it, till I'm done, till it's perfected. You say, well, how do you know those three days are not literal? Because in verse 33, he says something different. He says, nevertheless, I, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. You say, well, wait, I thought you said on the third day you'd be perfected, you'd be done. Now here you're saying that, that third day you'd, you'd continue doing what you're doing. Jesus is saying, he, you say, what, what is his response? The, response the, the threat is this, you need to leave now. The response from Jesus is simply this, I will be conducting my business as usual. I'm not going to let you scare me or threaten me. They said, get thee out and depart. Jesus says, I'll get out when I'm good and ready. I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Then he says, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, look, I will be conducting my business as usual. I will be doing what I was already planning on doing, and I will do it until I am good and ready to be done. And by the way, this is how we should respond to threats. Amen. I remember back in 2016, 
when we had the big protest at the old building and people kept telling me, you got to cancel the service, you can't have church, they're going to kill you, you know. What were they saying? Get thee out, Herod will kill you. What was our response? We're going to have church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night. And we're just going to continue on conducting our business till Jesus says otherwise. I, I think that's what Jesus is kind of alluding to today and tomorrow on the third day. We, we're, we're not going to be scared. We're not going to let them scare us away, threaten us away. We're just, they, the protesters are, we will be here till the church shuts down. Well, we're still here. And we will be here until our work is done, until it shall be perfected. So we see that Jesus teaches on the prophet in Jerusalem. And then just quickly tonight, he teaches on a lament for Jerusalem. Because Jesus kind of makes this sarcastic statement at the end of verse 33. He says, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. And I think it's kind of sarcastic. Jesus is saying, look, Herod's not going to kill me. He says, look, Jerusalem is such a wicked city. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. That's where you've killed the prophets, and that's where I'm going to go. So then, with that in mind, we see a lament for Jerusalem, verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. We see this picture of compassion that Jesus paints, this picture of a hen gathering her chicks, and Jesus says, I would have gathered thy children together as a hen. What was the problem? The problem was that ye would not. And then there's a prediction of destruction. Verse 35, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When Jesus here talks about their house being desolate, he's referring to Jerusalem. That's the context. And I believe that he is making a prediction here about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I believe that it is a twofold prediction here. One is of a coming destruction that is right around the corner. Jesus talked about this. I won't have you turn there, but you can jot this down if you'd like. Matthew 24, 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See, not all these things. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. You say, what was that a prediction to? I believe that was a prediction that was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus, who would later become the emperor of Rome, burns down Jerusalem and destroys the temple as predicted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The desolation of Jerusalem. But there's another coming desolation that will happen in the end time when Jerusalem will be compassed about and the city will become desolate and the abomination of desolation shall be erected. And Jesus says in verse 35, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, this is a reference to the coming of the Lord, the second coming, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Because the truth is this, the work of God, the kingdom of God, the salvation of God, the true kingdom of God is wrapped up in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. I know there's a lot of verses and a lot of things to go over tonight. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to understand these things and to apply them to our lives. 
Lord, help us to not be so naive to think that everybody that calls themselves a Christian is, that everybody that says they're a preacher, that they are. Help us to realize that we want growth. We do want growth. We want to reach people. But sometimes growth is not exactly good. And the kingdom of God has in some ways grown so large that it's full of leaven and fouls of the air. And for people to actually get saved, they've got to fight. And we've got to fight to get them there, earnestly contend for the faith. Lord, help us to realize these things. Help us to be involved in the work of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.